0: You're welcome, everybody. trannona tránnona. You're all very welcome to Academy House. Um, my name is Georgia Doria. I work on Folklorna na nua I'm the assistant editor. And this is the fourth in our um, spring lunchtime lecture series on Celticists, lexicographers, and antiquarian scholars, and it's an initiative by the Library, the Dictionary of Irish Biography, and Folklorna na nua here in the Royal Irish Academy. It is my very great pleasure to introduce our speaker today, and Dr Liam Macaulay, um, lecturer from Maynooth University. Liam has expert knowledge of lexicographers and dictionaries of the 20th century in the Irish language, having studied them for his PhD. And he is the author of Folkloré and Folkloré Henna published in 2008. And he also does many, many other things and speaks regularly on and Liffe. Uh, he's on the Board of Directors of Courage, and um, he is an author in his own right. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing what he has to say today on The Life and Dictionaries of Timothy O'Neill Lane, 1852-1915. to 1915.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to start, if you will allow me, I have two copies, one copy of the two, um, each of the two editions of O'Neill Lane's Dictionary here with me. They're my own. I- and feel free to take a look at them as I um, try to deliver the uh, the talk. I'd ask you to be a little bit careful with them, obviously, but uh, do feel free to take a look at them and see what you can garner from them yourselves. So I'll do that. I'll start by doing that. Compiling a dictionary of contemporary Irish must be one of the most difficult tasks with which a lexicographer can be entrusted. While the English or French lexicographer must content himself with registering the actual use of the modern literary language his irish colleague has the unique assignment of codifying an idiom which is regarded by some as a dying language and by others as a language in the making and which is for the time being both those were the remarks of professor Manja aftertale from oslo university in 1962 as he reviewed the english-irish dictionary edited by Thomas the waldra the same challenges could be identified up to 300 years earlier where, when the preservation of the language and its extension were also some of the primary motivations of Irish-language lexicographers of that time. Míoló Claire, his fellow Franciscans and others, attempted to advance the linguistic ability of the population with aids such as dictionaries. It is difficult to imagine that the use of the Irish language in the modern day would have been as easily facilitated without the availability of this lexicographical material, and without those who compiled it, Timothy O'Neill Lane included. I'm very grateful to the Royal Irish Academy and especially to Siobhan Fitzpatrick and the staff of the library, and also to the project team of Focláir no Núah Elish Nivari, uh, agus Deirdaarri in particular, for their invite to speak to you today as regards the lexicographer Timothy O'Neill Lane, his life and his dictionaries. In speaking with Siobhan in advance of preparing the talk, I would have been conscious of trying to include a variety of information that would hopefully appeal to all present here today and that would complement that which has been discussed in the last number of weeks in this innovative series of lectures. My own background relates in part to the study of Irish language lexicography so you will forgive me for the fact that the direction of my paper not only looks at O'Neill Lane and his life's work but more specifically how this work fits into the canon of the 20th century Irish language lexicographical achievement. Therefore, in order to do the topic at hand just today, I hope to address Irish language lexicographers and their dictionaries of the 20th century, and in particular those volumes that were contemporaneous with O'Neill Lane's work, a brief overview of O'Neill Lane's life and his background, and some analysis of his work and published dictionaries. To note as we commence that the centenary of O'Neill Lane's death is being well fated. In addition to this paper, a recent piece on the History Show on RT Radio 1 uh, there is also a Timothy O'Neill Lane Commemoration Committee in Monaster Nevela in Abbey Field in County Limerick. And I understand on Saturday the 9th of May uh, 2015, a headstone will be, be placed at his unmarked grave in Brosna in his honour. Those who speak, work, and study the Irish language have always had an interest in words, phrases, derivations, and of course, dictionaries. Lexicographers were motivated by a similar interest. In the 20th century, we see the evolution of lexicography from the influence of the revival to the necessities of the new Irish state, from a paper tradition to one that is computer-aided, from the promotion of literacy in the traditional sense to the certification of new terminology through the means of lexicography. The lexicographers involved in this process in the 20th century were an eclectic group and certainly differed greatly in approach, character and style. Together with O'Neill Lane, Edmund Edward Fournier-Dalb, Father Lambert McKenna, Father Patrick Deneen, the Master of Algeria, and Neil O'Dongle prepared the most noteworthy dictionaries of this time. What united each of them stems from a great personal dedication to the Irish language, a willingness to work assiduously, and a sense of purpose derived from their linguistic and lexicographic undertaking. The element of personal dedication is not to be underestimated. All of the projects involved, even those produced under the auspices of the Irish state later in the century, required an anchor or lead producer. The lexicographers involved performed that role not only by producing raw material, in conjunction with others in a team in some cases, but also by publicly justifying and advocating the need for such an aid in language learning or standardisation. It is useful to begin by suggesting three broad categories to help describe the attributes of the principal lexicographers that produced the primary bilingual Irish language dictionaries of the 20th century. Number one, as language activists. Number two, as dialect and literary historians. Uh, And or number three, scientific academic practitioners. In some cases, more than one of those categories is appropriate for the lexicographer involved. And in O'Neill Lane's case, as we will see, I think the second category is the most appropriate. It is also helpful at the outset to contextualise the sequence and timing of their contributions all in all six distinct time periods can be identified in terms of irish language lexicography in the 20th century and i've listed them on the handout that i think was distributed um, at the very start i won't go through each of the six but i will simply note that needless to say if we're looking at the timing of um the dictionaries and i'll just move on a little bit here if that'll work you'll see there we have Uh, the covers of the two uh, editions in in question for O'Neill Lane, the 1904 edition of the 1916 edition, um, you'll note that that, uh, O'Neill Lane's impact obviously straddles the first two time periods of the six that I propose to list. As you can see from this handout, Timothy O'Neill Lane has two entries in this hit list, one from 1904 and one from 1916. Before I begin to address O'Neill Lane and his contribution, I would like to look at the two other dictionaries that were published at around the same time as O'Neill Lane's work. Edmund Fournier's dictionary was the first noteworthy bilingual dictionary since Foley's dictionary in the 1850s. Published by Uncommon Celtic, the Celtic Association, a year before O'Neill Lane and containing 21,000 headwords, His objective, as Fournier states, was to produce a dictionary for the student to express himself in accurate and graceful Irish. Fournier, a scientist, engineer and language activist who was born in London and had lived in Germany, later lectured in physics in Birmingham University and in India, and attempted to take the most direct and uncomplicated examples of translations from English and find the equivalent Irish language headword. This simplicity, and in particular his academic and systematic style, would have helped learners of the language. Grammatic notations were very clear, and he attempted to simplify certain spellings. He noted the Irish language version of the headword after each meaning in English, where there were many different meanings, again assisting the learner. Where there were two words with the same meaning, he would prioritise the classical word and then place localised versions afterwards. Fournier, unlike O'Neill Lane, was relatively sparing in the use of phrases and other information in his entries. He always chose the words and meanings that were in common parlance, and omitted many words that were not commonly used, or for which there were no easy equivalents. Similar to de dictionary at the end of the 20th century, he was quite happy to engage in the composition of new words, marked by a star in the dictionary, primarily as suggestions rather than proscriptions for the time period in question. Fournier's dictionary became overshadowed by O'Neill Lane's larger productions shortly thereafter. Father Patrick Deneen produced two principal Irish English dictionaries under the auspices of the Irish Text Society, Common the Scriven commencing with the 1904 edition. In the introduction to that edition, Deneen noted It is curious to recall that the production of an Irish dictionary was one of the dreams of my boyhood. 30,000 Irish-language headwords are described by 300,000 English-language words in that edition. And although Denine steered the edition to its conclusion, Dáithio Quimin, Owen MacNeill, Father Padre O'Leire, had also been involved with the project at earlier stages, and Joseph of Lídia read a draft of the manuscript in its entirety. Denine, a Jesuit Priest, writer and literary editor, based the frame of the dictionary around that of the Oxford English Dictionary, and in some cases one definition of the headword was needed, and on other occasions, sometimes two or three. English language poets, dialectical variations of the headword, the names of people, place names, and quotes from famous authors with some dates were all frequently mentioned. The descriptions, however, did vary in style and quality. Denine was lucky to have a great repertoire of poetry in his own mind, from Kerry mainly, to augment his dictionary entries. The second edition was in effect a completely new dictionary, as the plates of the first had been destroyed in a fire in 1916. There was nearly half as much information again in the second edition, which contained 45,000 headwords from literature and common parlance. Dineen suffered a certain amount of ill health during the compilation of the latter edition and was assisted by Liam S. Gogan. This second, larger dictionary continues to be used today, mainly because of the wealth of rich examples used in the entries, and as such is a great aid to contemporary literary writers of both prose and poetry. All that now brings us to Timothy O'Neill Lane himself. Lane's English-Irish dictionary was first published by David Nutt in 1904 in Dublin, printed by Seeley, Briars and Walker containing 581 pages, it cost uh, £2,500 to print, with a sales price of 10 shillings a copy. As a teacher, journalist, and a travel writer at different times, O'Neill Lane spent nearly 20 years working on his dictionary prior to producing the original version in 1904. By that time, approximately 600 people had paid a fee before the printing, fees that in part enabled the printing of that first edition to take place albeit that it is funny to note that therefore there were probably £500 of a profit uh, to, to, on those fees to begin with, a theme we will revisit later. He viewed lexicography as a pastime, but was similar to Denneen in that he was able to draw on his own vast knowledge of poetry, storytelling, music and folklore, and use much of that in his dictionary. Thomas de alderha described O'Neill Lane's dictionary as an English-English-Irish dictionary, in that Lane provides a long list of meanings in English for each headword following with an Irish equivalent for each of them. Constable and England were the first of a number of publishers to, to, to publish a larger version of the dictionary totalling 1748 pages uh, with 30,000 headwords in 1916, just after he died. A seven-year project in that case at a cost of £2,000. He had used webster's dictionary as a reference point for the english language headwords in this larger edition but his dictionary was then superseded by that of both mckenna and of aldra later in the century the revival times and the gaelic leagues attempts at language revival formed the atmospheric backdrop to his work there was much of the irish language around o'neill lane in limerick with a rich cultural heritage that included the above mentioned poetry and storytelling etc Much of that is visible in the dictionary entries. Lane dedicated the dictionary to the the bishops and the priests who helped complete the work and noted the correct conditions to bring the work to a conclusion. As he says on page six of the 1904 edition, after long years of patient labor and research, the fortunate and powerful movement inaugurated by the Gaelic League for the revival in the Irish language seemed to me to offer a favorable opportunity for carrying my scheme into effect. For language revivalists, dictionaries were a very important part of language planning, heritage preservation, and national pride. Work such as that of the privateer lexicographer, like O'Neill Lane, was very acceptable in that context. Also in the introduction to the 1904 dictionary, he shares many of his thoughts on language planning and promotion. His own feeling was that it was vital that both scholars and learners of the language alike should be encouraged. He suggested that Irish language verse should be written freely again, as this was the case at the time in Latin. He hoped that deficiencies in the modern technical terminology within the Irish language could and would be corrected if the language was used again as a means of communication between those in Ireland and those in Scotland, for example. What we may notice in in this early stage of the 20th century is that the two bilingual english irish dictionaries uh, that excuse me that two bilingual I- english irish dictionaries had been produced and one bilingual bilingual irish english dictionary o'neill lane's effort was very much the least scaffolded work in that he did not have an organization or an association to support the work as was the case with both Denine uh, and fournier's um, efforts However, in both the case of Deneen and O'Neill Lane, their approach was quite similar in the style they used. I will return further to commentary on both of his dictionaries in a moment. Timothy Lane, or T. O'Neill Lane, as he often referred to himself, was born in Gartine uh, in Temple Glantine in Limerick in 1852 to Timothy Lane and Mary O'Neill. His father was a farmer from Mount Collins in Limerick, while his mother was brought up in Brosna in Kerry, nine miles from where they eventually lived. He was the youngest in the family, with four older sisters and three older brothers. He attended the local school in Temple Glantyne, and from an early age, he was an avid collector of words. He had the reputation of being a bright, organised boy who was successful in secondary school. He was trained as a primary teacher, And from 1871, he spent time teaching in the local primary school, spending six years there in total. Even though it was a good salary and a stable job, he decided to move, placing more of an emphasis on what McHenry later described as his greater advancement and ambition in life. At that stage, he sought work in the civil service, and although he succeeded by examination, he was not accepted as he had a weakness in his leg that left him somewhat lame. From there, he moved to London and was appointed a clerk in the Incorporated Law Society in 1877, and it was then that he began using O'Neill, his mother's name, in his name. After that, he worked as a reporter for the newspaper The Times. By 1889, he had registered with the Institute of Journalists. Makatunna Uh, Sean Macatianna suspects that it was his uncle on his mother's side, Aeneas O'Neill, that procured the work with the Times initially, and that also put him up in London and later again when he was in Paris. He moved from London to Paris a number of times and back, and it was there that he wrote the introduction to the first edition of the dictionary in 1904. Bearing in mind that he said that he worked 20 years to gather material for the dictionary before its publication, it would have been in within this time from 1884 onwards that amongst other commitments he was working to compile the dictionary. It is said that he was simply motivated to do so by a conversation that he had with a friend where he stated that he really should go away and compile such a dictionary. During that time he was based mainly in southwest London in Fulham and in Brixton amongst other places. By 1893 he was a staff member of the Law Times. He married twice, initially a lady from Belfast who later died in a car accident. Uh, Details are are very scarce about about that lady. Then he married a second time. He married Dorette Annie Ailey in July 1888 in Kensington Cathedral and they had two children, a son and a daughter. Uh, It transpires that she never travelled to Ireland and neither did, 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 did his daughter, albeit that his son lived in Ireland in Turnafulla for a while after his wife had died. However, there is indeed some doubt if she died at all or if they were simply separated. Outside of lexicography, O'Neill Lane wrote primarily on travel matters. By the turn of the century, he was engaged in his own private writing full-time. He had returned to Ireland a number of times at that point, and it was then he compiled the book Round Erin* or Highways and Byways in Ireland, circa 1900, followed by The Way About Ireland. The Way About Irish Lakes and Rivers, and The Sportsman and Tourist Guide to Ireland. When he was in the throes of compiling the dictionaries at this point, he stayed with the Kelly family in Tournafulla. When he had finished the first edition, he returned to Paris, where, as I have mentioned, he wrote the introduction to that first edition. And then he continued there until at least 1908, when he focused again on the second, larger edition. In stating all of that, he was not particularly happy with the circumstances, as he says in the introduction to the second edition, and I quote, The great mass of material collected by me during 20 years could not be fully utilised, owing to the fact that I had other onerous duties to perform in connection with the post held in Paris at that time. Besides this, there were financial difficulties, as I did not get anything like the support I anticipated. The same want of support has followed me, to the present undertaking. In saying that, he did not seem to worry a great deal as regards financial matters at other times. He never seemed to go without, especially when he travelled to collect material for the dictionaries. He always travelled first-class on the train, and in Round Ireland or Highways and Byways in Ireland, Lane mentions the different hotels in which he stayed, the cars which he hired, and indeed the steamships upon which he had procured a seat. Lane went to the post office nearly every day with his leather satchel full of letters to be sent. Some of these certainly reached the office of Oxford journals, as his notes on different elements of Ireland's language and history were published in the notes and queries of those publications up to the start of 1913. He wrote a letter to the Irish book lover that was published in 1915 and it gave an overview of the last years of his life, spending the seven last years working on the larger edition of the dictionary. He noted that he did not mind that the volume might lose money, more that it would be published in good time. He died in 1915, just before the larger edition was published, and was buried in Brosna with his mother's family, something which was not not a particularly common occurrence, and something which might suggest that he was not in touch with the Lane side of his family at all in his last years. O'Neill Lane's life, similar to Edmund Fournier, shows a Celticist located in more than one place, with a European flair, And with the advantage of a varied set of life experiences, nevertheless making it a priority to promote and scaffold the Irish language and its cause by providing a tool in language and corpus planning, i.e. the creation and availability of a dictionary. It would seem that both his professional career and his family life were colourful, and it may have been that such an underlying dedication to an overarching project, such as the first edition of the dictionary, could have been detrimental to the pursuit of a balanced lifestyle. The single-minded personality needed for a role of a lone privateer lexicographer may have also gone against him somewhat. On the other hand he also seemed to have a way of impressing a wide range of supporters to come to his aid in terms of financial support and other assistance such as bed and lodgings. There can be no doubt that he must have also had a very persuasive style and that many people were indeed drawn to assist him where needed in particular in compiling the first edition. In a piece in the Irish Independent in april nineteen twelve, the following was stated One of the chief ingredients of any language is the want of a good dictionary, and Ireland, though once the fountainhead of knowledge for all the nations of Europe, is now behind them in this respect. This gives a good sense of how acutely felt the lack of a comprehensive lexicogra- of, of how, how acutely felt the lack of comprehensive comprehensive lexicographical material was felt. Reverting to our earlier statement and in now taking a little bit more of a, little, uh, of a look at, at the, the two editions of the dictionary, uh, I'd like to return to Devalder's comment um, that this dictionary may well be an English-English-Irish dictionary. And if, if, you, if you'll bear with me for a moment, I'd like to take you on to the next slide, or that slide, the last slide, and I'd like to read um, one or two of the dictionary definitions just to give you a flavour. I'm going to read a longer one in a minute which I don't have on the slides. So, you can see there, um, I've placed a, a, a small selection um, in, in front of you. Um, and I, I'll start with the, uh, the adjective brimless, which, uh, as is defined by uh, O'Neill Lane, firstly, having no brim, uh, and then giving a number of different um, uh, options. <laughs> Consider that dictionary entry and consider that in the context of the learner for a moment. If we take the second one, colourist, one who colours, an artist who excels in the use of colours, we do eventually get to the word Dahador. Uh, and then we have a small quote from Owen Rua, Magá, Acht nar Ekishir and Dahador. Then we move on to jot out to project beyond beyond the main body, mách. And finally, we get refreshing, which initially is described for the benefit of, of, of us all as cool. And then we get to fjolnuj. Now, I think if you look at those um, those examples, the basic tenet of the, the style of the dictionary in that context of the English-English-Irish flow uh, is quite visible. Um, in a moment, I'm going to read you a longer definition. And again, I hope to tie that into, uh, into um um, possibly both the strengths and the weaknesses of the dictionary as I go forward. By and large, unlike Fournier and later de Valdrahe, O'Neill Lane avoided composing new words in Irish, albeit not quite the same in English. De Valdrahe notes the example of sleeping pin in the dictionary, created so that he could mention the term Biron suan, a term in Irish folklore that denoted a pin which had been inserted into someone's clothes and until removed that that person would sleep. Like Denine, he managed to insert any number of proverbs, place names, verses, etc. into the dictionary entries. Common words had very long entries, with more than 30 versions listed under the word blow, and 40 under the word anger. And I think at this point, again if you'll you'll bear with me, I think it's worth looking at the verb to appertain, and I'm going to examine that taken from a critique that was given by Seil Machatunna. Bear with me for for one moment so to appertain and again patience is required for this entry so um i warn you in advance appertain when buen. i appertain or belong to appertaining also banum boon, buen agus point applied only to reaping in monster note Bwinam is used in such a variety of ways by the old people that it might be convenient to set down here all of them I know. Number one. Cut, dig, lift, strip, strike. As eg bwinnt eart, charche nu Two. To strike violently or hastily against, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Dagla g'muinach the chush le cloch. Three. Bwinam. I take a thing unoffered, as opposed to glachum. I take a thing that is offered to me. Bwinam as, I draw, take. Number five, bwinam air. A, I take from. B, I anticipate a person in taking a thing. Six, bwinam equals take, having the force of, happen, seize, overtake, or come by chance. Seven, move, pull, ring, as bwin unclog. Pull the bell rope. Eight. bwinde To cease, undo, unloose, let go of your hold of a thing. Nine. bwinde Extort, remove, take off, undress, on unvest, on etc. Ten. See, belong, she che the vile shaw. Eleven. Bwynnimamach. Achieve, make out. Twelve. Bwynnimamach. Take possession of, exact, eke out thirteen Buynam I win succeed the Arab won the race win on Tarib on Rosa in brackets it is generally pronounced as if written Vwin exactly win in Ulster and always in Achill Island. Now I could go on. That's we're up to thirteen. The, the entry goes as far as twenty. And you can see that is not in any way an unusual occurrence if you take a good look at the dictionary and particularly if you look at certain head words, some of which we we, we might treat as those in common parlance, like the ones I referred to, anger and blow. I wouldn't have thought appertain, um, certainly in the modern day, might have merited the the same commentary um, that O'Neill Lane gives it. But again, as I said, it is quite representative of many of the other entries within the dictionary. After the first edition, he had already planned a scheme of improvements and announced a coupon plan with a prize of £25 for the best-suggested amendment. He aimed, he said, to base his second edition on scientific lines. He wished to use the most authoritative examples with more phrases for the native speakers. He utilised the internationally recognised Webster Dictionary to identify the English words, and confirmed this by coming to a copyright arrangement with them. As Conor McGahan notes in his recent work on terminology in Revival Times O'Neillane took a number of examples from folklore gnoha agus goraicinte O'Channing eh, Nedige agus a kiaart, 1904 showing that some more of the modern technology was visible at that point in the later edition In stating that nevertheless his travels allowed him to place a great emphasis on the living language a number of key people assisted him in this work Poirik Okiala, a national school teacher teaching in RD, County Louth. Thaigo Dunacha and Thull of Taigo Dunacha Thorna, who read the proofs of the first dictionary in its entirety and also assisted um, with the, the second edition as well, of course, who was editor of Lar and the Gaelic uh, and one of the founders of Craven Hesnig of Cronwyn of the Gaelic League. Lane also received help from, uh, from such people as Professor J.C. Ward from St. Eunan's College in Letterkenny and many others. In terms of previous bilingual dictionaries, he utilised Begley and McCartan, some specialised terms from Cinellon, and Foley for words in English where transliteration had already occurred. He had an extensive collection of books of his own with many foreign dictionaries, and he utilised these to the full. He also used examples from Bidell's Old Testament and O'Donnell's New Testament and in hoping to preserve the language register in the Irish language from the 17th century in words in English that were created from the Webster edition of modern times. And I'll just move backwards for a moment. Constable published a second larger edition, or the second larger edition, initially in 1915 in England, and then the Educational Company of Ireland did likewise in Ireland in 1916. Edco, as they are now known, paid the remainder of the money that was owed to the printers Cahill and Co after Lane's death to take possession of the last copies. At that stage over 700 copies had already been released. There was a second edition in England published by Gresham and an American edition by Funk and in 1917. Due to demand there was also a second printing of the Irish edition by the Talbot Press in 1921. Referring to the first 1904 edition For the language scholar, O'Neill Lane was never accurate nor comprehensive enough, in O'Hickey's view, while both the typeface and the cost were also negative factors, in his opinion. There was not enough analysis, plus a lack of information, and a weak grasp of detail in the language, and a lack of connective evidence between some of the Irish language equivalents to the English headwords. More generally, it is fair to say that his dictionary can also be criticised in parts for a lack of consistency in the notations for topographical and grammatical material. The Freemans Journal noted the lack of modern terminology in the first edition, and the Irish Times stated, the author has acquitted himself on the whole credibly and has produced a valuable book. There are points to which more attention should be paid. The genders, for example, are not invariably, invariably given. The second edition received a little more praise, both before and after. In both the Irish Independent and in Clive Sullish, a praiseworthy article was published in which Thorne, amongst other commentators, stated, your work exceeds all others of its class that have appeared hitherto. But as we said, potentially Thorne could have been biased given the fact that he assisted with the dictionary. And after its publication, again in the Irish Independent, it was stated one of the most complete and comprehensive dictionaries of the Irish language yet issued uh, from the press. In November 1916, a review in the Irish Times gave a more balanced account of both the dictionary's strengths and weaknesses. And again, if you bear with me, I'll read again a little bit from that. So the uh, part of um, uh, of the review goes as follows. The amount of information is enormous and full of interest, though it must be said that a larger number of documentary references would have added considerably to the value of the book, and perhaps the English headwords include a greater amount of synonyms that is inconsistent with real utility. Its utility naturally varies according to the ability and the experience of the user. In fact, one might almost say that the student who might safely be trusted alone with a dictionary of this kind is already independent of such an aid. Does geníða bear the exclusive meaning of broker? Here, a documentary reference would have been of interest. The translation of imagination is hardly adequate. Smúine, rather, suggests an action rather than a faculty. It would have been well to have added a periphrastic rendering in such a case. Hackneyed is rendered by ganná And here again, one would like an example. While the examples given are, as a rule, sound in many instances, particularly where they are drawn from the Irish Bible, the construction is unidiomatic and not to be imitated by the student. The book is extremely well printed, however. So you can see there a balance between uh, the strengths and the weaknesses uh, that could be identified um, in in the dictionary. And again, not all the commentary at the time might have been uh, as clear and as unbiased. Unfortunately, the dictionary's notoriety, and that of O'Neill Lane himself, may not have lasted very long. Mach a notes that it was used and referred to relatively infrequently as the century went on. Uh, Duart se, ta an a bhag aon nu a whair an gand faim salat agus a simuil ead te, a simuil gamleish iel ead an te, ar speisleis na tagartí, da na teangach iel agus an nind orpish in translation, my own, uh, that dictionary is more or less out of use in the modern day, but it is of interest to those who would note other Celtic and Indo-European languages. Makachone recently states that uh, uh, Lane's larger English Irish Dictionary, er an dó and again the translation my own, Lane's larger English Irish Dictionary was an amateur effort, produced by the author as a pastime for himself. Kieran O'Divine was not too praiseworthy when noting in 2008 the inconsistencies in morphology in the dictionary by saying, "With O'Neill Lane, too many examples Ill- illustrating the lexus of one dialect often conform to the grammar of another." One of the effects of O'Neill Lane's dictionary, and therefore one of the um, one of the um, uh, particular uh, strengths that he may have bestowed upon the language um, or, or, or clarified maybe one of the weaknesses probably a better way of describing it was to uh, was to, to more clearly show how weak the language had become in terms of effective terminological expression when it came to matters such as science industry the arts and political matters It was only after the founding of the state that the state-initiated terminological committees could get to grips with these deficiencies, and that the product of these efforts could also then be incorporated into larger bilingual state-funded dictionaries in the years after. O'Neill Lane's work came at a very appropriate time, and for language lovers, as distinct from pure language learners, his dictionary was very welcome. Fournier's more scientific effort would suit the learner better, as it is more precise, demonstrably clearer, handles more of modern vocabulary, uh, while also including the notion of suggested word composition. O'Neill Lane's dictionaries bear more similarity to Denine's works, with a great deal of extraneous information, as we have seen. One might ask why Denine's work has stood the test of time, or would be more, or would be better known than that of O'Neill Lane. Well, it would be fair to say that more people with a good standard of Irish would look to Dineen for a great deal of source information regarding the examples, quotes and phrases used. In an English-Irish dictionary, in the style of O'Neill Lane, such a dictionary nearly gives more of the English language than that of the Irish language, and therefore could never quite be seen as such a valuable resource. Its main target audience, if it was indeed the learner of the Irish language, could end up more likely to be confused than informed. The art of lexicography, however, as an academic discipline and as a professional craft, however, has moved on substantially in the last hundred years, as is known all too well to those who work here in the Royal Irish Academy Academy so expertly. From language activism to historians interested in etymological, literary and dialectic preservation, to academics using scientific lexicography, all the lexicographers of the 20th century had laudable aims indeed they had they all had the promotion of the irish language in one form or another in their minds when working to compile their respective dictionaries however it was most certainly the variety of these aims that may have weakened some of the dictionaries in a lexicographical sequence that coupled with a need for relentless precision in the art of lexicography in men whose primary experience in life in most cases was not exclusively related to dictionary making meant that the Irish language lacked during the 20th century and perhaps still does today comprehensive monolingual and bilingual dictionaries. The state's fortunes and the support of the sector generally also seem inextricably linked um, to Irish language lexicography in the 20th century and the success or lack thereof. However, the tale of the work of those mentioned in this piece demonstrates how so many gifted individuals, especially those working within the sphere of education, contributed to the store of lexicographical data within the language, and Timothy O'Neill Lane was no different. We have seen a man in this paper that stumbled upon a particular academic discipline by chance, and with a great need and reception for dictionary material, matched his ability and resourcefulness with ambition and diligence to produce two bilingual lexicographical volumes and much linguistic information at a time when a future nation and its language required much scaffolding. The organisation and finesse of subsequent works may have surpassed his efforts but nevertheless his unique life story and the products of his zeal are very noteworthy and add a rich installment to the story of Irish language lexicography in the 20th century his individual efforts are unlikely to be repeated gordemagus